Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. And then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Terry Toppler, and this is the 534th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Craig Verniest, former graduate student at Miami University of Ohio, who is going to talk about Mexican playwright Rodolfo Usigli. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buff, Rick Sweet. So to begin with, welcome to the show, Craig. We call Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. We, we call this first segment Farouk Dinarwin, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So, Craig, can you start us off with some background on who Rodolfo Usigli was? Yes, yeah, so uh, Rodolfo Usigli was, uh, he was, uh, as you said, a playwright. He was a diplomat uh, for many decades of his life. Uh, government official or, you know, functionary at different points and all around author, artist, intellectual in Mexico, uh, working primarily from uh, the late 20s until uh, his death in 1979. And he was uh, born in 1905, just five years before the outbreak of the, uh, of the Mexican Revolution. So what kind of influence did some of the events that he lived through have on his playwriting? Oh, that is a, a great question. <laughs> um, so Usigli, I mean, I would say first and foremost, Usigli was born to uh, immigrant parents. His, uh, his mother was from um, Poland and his uh, father was from Italy. So that's kind of where you get the, uh, the funky uh, not necessarily Mexican-sounding name of uh, Rodolfo Usigli. Um, but he's, his father died uh, pretty soon after he was born, and he grew up in Mexico City in a pretty kind of lower middle class, close to working class neighborhood, um, and lived his formative years, you know, very much uh, young uh, childhood into uh, almost a, uh, early adulthood. Uh, during the upheaval of the the revolutionary years between 1910 and 1920, so his life was uh, very much informed entirely by the uh, by the experience of being a young child and then a, a teenager, uh, going to school in Mexico City and seeing you know bodies lying in the street, mm-hmm. uh, you know the destruction kind of uh, rampant. Uh, at the time, ambulances crossing at any time of the day. Uh, being uh, pretty decently poor, um, ha- having uh, some sometimes you know meals, the only meals of the day provided by the school, uh, whatever public funding the school had at the time to uh, for the kids to to get maybe one meal that they would have for the day, and then as he moves from uh, you know um, uh, childhood and uh, you know teenage years, adolescence into his uh into his adulthood uh during the 1920s of his life uh and entrance into the kind of artistic and intellectual milieu of the capital during the 1920s was very much informed by the the interplay between uh artists and intellectuals and the the emerging national government that was kind of reconstituting itself and its control over the country uh, during that that initial decade immediately following the relative but not entire end to the the civil warfare years 
uh, within Mexico between 1910 and 1920. So, Craig, um, when we look at his plays, so we have a history of him growing up in poverty um, in a sea of violence, you know, during the Mexican Revolution, and you're talking about seeing potties in the street, uh, and he's still a child. What do his plays say about humanity? Was he optimistic, pessimistic, you know? I would... Yeah, yeah, I would say um, a kind of an interesting mix of both. I'd say his most of his work I would consider pretty pessimistic, especially the uh, the play we're probably going to talk about the most today, El Hesticulador, The Imposter. That's the uh, mm. the one I focused on the most. Uh, it's very a very pessimistic uh, view on the kind of the. The, the national government and the means of maintaining uh, power and rule in Mexico following immediately coming out of the revolution. Uh, in other plays, uh, he's, he focuses on kind of social and psychological issues present in Mexico during that time as well. So uh, one uh, couple plays uh, uh, kind of called uh, Middle Tone and uh, The Family Eats at Home um, are kind of critiques of an emerging uh, middle class in Mexico during that time, uh, kind of their idiosyncratic and hypocritical behaviors uh, towards themselves and not being able to kind of truly, you know, understand their, their kind of their, their own identities and their, their, you know, kind of, yeah, their, I would say again, they're kind of their, their presentations to themselves and to others around them uh, as differing from how they truly are themselves, kind of like masquerading in public to mm-hmm. to have a, uh, have a favorable view from others was a theme that, you know, kind of is relevant throughout all almost all of his works. Uh, he was, especially during that time, there was a big kind of uh, public discourse around what does it mean to be Mexican and what does it mean uh, for our particular experience of what they called uh, a distinctly Mexican style of hypocrisy. And that was something that he took up across much of his work. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. of joy, in moments of grief. Broadcasters come through, even when all else fails. Today, with more ways than ever to experience the moments that transform our lives, Americans still choose broadcast radio and television more than all other media combined. We are the local broadcasters of radio and television, reaching more people, touching more lives. Brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Terry Toppler and this is the second segment of the show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Craig Verniste, former graduate student at Miami University of Ohio, and we're talking about Mexican playwright Rodolfo Usigli, 
Our history buff for today's show is Rick Sweet. So, Rick, why don't you start? Okay, thanks, Terry. Craig, uh, uh, as a graduate student, I know I, I struggled with what I my master's thesis was going to be all about. And um, I was curious, why did you decide on researching and producing a tract on Rodolfo? That was, uh, yeah, I'd say it was a kind of convergence of several different factors. In, uh, in my undergrad, I had I had done a study abroad in Mexico, uh, and being a history major, kind of just fell in love with uh, what I was uh, learning down there about about Mexican history, Mexican culture, society, politics, everything. Uh, and then continuing on into my master's program, I knew it was something that I still wanted to focus on. Uh, but having done a thesis prior on uh, the revolution, I had wanted to kind of switch to, well, all right, I know a, you know, a decent amount about uh, this, you know, kind of transitive uh, moment of change, what came afterwards. And so when I came to Miami, um, I had not, not really a strong idea or really no idea whatsoever on who Sigri was and having... At, at Miami University, uh, they have a they have the Rodolfo Sigli Archive, which is the uh, kind of repository for almost all of the materials related to Sigli and his, uh, you know, as much uh, artistic output as his his work as a as a diplomat and as a government official. Um, so having that archive there was very useful as a kind of just this has been kind of placed in my lap and I can just go forward with this uh, topic that I know um, a bit about proceeding, but now have the ability to just to really go in depth. In it. And I think uh, Osigli kind of just came about as a great um, and intriguing figure to focus on. And uh, I also had the great support of uh, my advisor at Miami, Elena Jackson Albera, uh, who also focused on, focused on the same time period different topics, but uh, could give a lot of sound guidance on on how to consider the questions that I was interested in, in tackling. So, Craig, you talked earlier a little bit about The Imposter, uh, the play from 1938, which was about misuse of power. And then you mentioned uh, mm -hmm. another play called The Family Eats at Home about social structure. Were there any taboo topics that Usigli stayed away from? Uh, <laughs> I would, I would honestly say, um, I think he was, especially during his kind of the height of his output during the, uh, the thirties, the forties and the fifties, I think he was very comfortable with trying to tackle taboo topics and again, kind of confront that, that, uh, notion of, uh, hypocrisy and what it meant to be hypocritical. Uh, he has a play called Jano uh, es una muchacha, or Jano uh, is, is, is a girl, and that tackles uh, under um, underage prostitution. Mm. Um, he has another book called um, El Niño en la Niebla, The Boy in the Fog, and that book tackles, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of domestic abuse uh, at home the, uh, from the perspective of a boy, a young boy. Uh, the distance he experiences from his uh, father and mother that eventually leads him to uh, to suicide. Um, so I think he was pretty uh, interested in. He also wrote a book called um, 
uh, essay on a crime that uh, tackled kind of the portrayal of a serial killer at a time when uh, serial killers were uh, not at, not necessarily prominent, but there had been examples of serial killers gaining mass media coverage in Mexico during the 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he was pretty uh, comfortable uh, during the height of his, his output uh, with tackling taboo topics. Rick? Yeah, yeah, Craig, I was, uh, uh, something you mentioned earlier in the opening segment uh, that uh, Rodolfo was uh, uh, affected by or discussed or got consumed with a public discord on what you called Mexican style. What What is this Mexican style? Uh, oh, the, uh, the hypocrisy? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, really, it's part of a larger, um, I guess, kind of movement, but also just uh, uh, broad general considerations at the time. Coming out of the revolution and and coming out of the the dictatorship they had under Porfirio Diaz um, and trying to refashion a new kind of nation and a new national community, Artists and intellectuals, especially uh, and especially ones involved with the, the national government at the time, were con- concerned and you know contributed to broad debates raging on about what it meant to be, what it meant to be Mexican. Um, they you know the, there are these uh, two notions, kind of twin, of uh, lo mexicano and uh, mexicanidad, uh, that which is Mexican or that which constitutes being Mexican, and. Um, this um, artist and just uh, much of, you know, kind of what was going on in Mexico at the time was concerned with uh, what does it mean to be uh, Mexican in a nation that is, you know, ranging from, uh, you know, the deserts in the north along along the border with Arizona and all the way, you know, across down to jungles in the Yucatan. Uh, what does it mean when we have uh, um, a nation that's trying to reconstitute itself? And, and actually kind of become a nation, really, after a decades of both uh, kind of a dictatorship and mm. decades of decentralization from each other. Were they and successful? So Were they successful in in coming up and defining what, what uh, being Mexican uh, should be and is, and did that last? Um, I would... <laughs> I would say, uh, to an extent, uh, there, you know, there was a dominant idea of what being Mexican um, meant that came about and, and kind of took hold. Uh, you were, um, but at the same time, uh, my my research tended to focus on this kind of domin- dominant uh, conception of being Mexican that Usigli uh, kind of both adopted but also attempted to contest. Um, but there was, I mean, still continuing, there is so much historiography, especially in the last 30 years on, um, especially at the local level, local communities and, and regional uh, differences that would highly contest the notion that there is uh, one single way of being of being Mexican. Hmm. Craig, so you mentioned that Rodolfo Lasigli tackled some pretty heavy topics like underage prostitution and domestic abuse. So uh, how would you say that uh, women were represented in his plays? Oh, great question. Um, 
so in in the play I focus on, I focus on um, uh, the uh, El Hesticulador. Um The central figure is this uh, former academic, Cesar Rubio, who uh, goes on to adopt the persona and the name of a former uh, revolutionary hero uh, who is considered to have disappeared. Uh, they have the same name, they're born in the same town around the same time. Uh, so he's able to adopt and masquerade as this, this other Cesar Rubio uh, to try to gain uh, traction as the uh, candidate for state governor in, a, uh, in an unnamed uh, state, but along the border, in, uh, the, uh, the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, and this uh, Cesar Rubio, the former academic, uh, his wife is uh, insightful and uh, is portrayed as insightful, portrayed as kind of um, the backbone behind Rubio as he descends into this masquerading persona. Um, she questions him and is really the only one in his family who questions him. Um, but she also ultimately accepts uh, this, this kind of entrance into the dangerous realm of politics that he's going into. Uh, and I see her as kind of typically the, the kind of, uh, especially at the time, the stereotype of a self-abnegating uh, Mexican woman, one who um, is going to put aside uh, her own views and opinions to ultimately, not necessarily unquestioningly, but ultimately support her husband uh, on what he decides. Um, in in, uh, in Yano Asuna Muchacha, I think he takes a more kind of uh, critical look at uh, the way that especially younger underage women, uh, girls uh, in poverty in Mexico City were kind of compelled towards um, acting as prostitutes and that that was uh, uh, largely a, um, a byproduct of the kind of, you know, the patriarchal systems in place mm. where especially they were being visited by older, middle-aged, uh, upper-class clients. Hmm. Rick? Craig, uh, you mentioned that Rodolfo uh, came from a working-class background, but uh, uh, you uh, gave a uh, general progression of what he did, artist, uh, playwright, ambassador, things like that. Uh, what what was his sequence of jobs coming from, uh, from the barrio uh, to the... Uh, position of a diplomat how did he how did he get from point a to point uh, z oh gosh i mean he had he had so many jobs over his life but i could i could try to give the uh uh he started working i think around the ages of 14 or 15 um so right around the uh the kind of uh, tail end of the revolution as a um as a a, a kind of like not necessarily paper boy but kind of like kind of like in that vein or, or like as a secretary and I think like a U.S. Um, um, paper, uh, uh, um, not, not paper factory, but, you know, kind of you know, typing uh, like as a, as, a, as a typist kind of, I forget, stenographer, I think the term is. Sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, gets work in a position like that uh, and then he is uh, fluent in actually self-taught uh, besides French from his, uh, his, I think on his mother's side, um, is self-taught in several different languages. Uh, he never actually, um, he, unlike many of his peers, 
he never went to college. I think he, uh, if, I don't think he graduated high school. Uh, at most, he would have graduated high school. Um, and uh, during the, about the early to late 1920s, he uh, is just able to get uh, kind of random um, temporary gigs with different newspapers as a kind of freelance writer. And then eventually ends up uh, getting involved with uh, theater communities within Mexico City. Uh, starts out as an actor and then eventually goes into writing and then really pr- picks up as a playwright in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Uh, starts to get his first uh, decently well-known plays uh, performed during the mid to late 30s. Uh, um, in 1944, he uh, is picked up as a, uh, a candidate, as a diplomat, uh, goes on to become uh, I think like a secret, second secretary at the uh, um, Mexican embassy in Paris uh, while, you know, World War II is still going on. And then really in the 1950s, he serves as uh, ambassador in Lebanon and ambassador in Norway uh, during the 50s and 60s. So, Craig, um, I'm curious, were any of his plays adapted to film or TV and are any of his plays performed today? Yes. uh, El Hesticulador actually had, it um, was a kind of horrible failure. It did very poorly and did not make uh, barely any money, um, but was adapted into a film in 1959 uh, that was um, uh, put on in theaters in Mexico, uh, uh, movie theaters, I should say. Um, it had actually a pretty uh, well-known uh, actor, Pedro Armandariz, uh, who uh, I believe was decently well, would become decently well-known internationally um, he performed in, uh, he acted in, in several uh, European and American films. Uh, so kind of a really well-known actor, especially in Mexican cinema at the time. But the, uh, the movie, I think, was plagued by production troubles and wasn't able to make a whole lot of money. Uh, there was a serialized version in the U.S. Uh, sometime in the mid-50s of El Hesticulador. And then uh, men, uh, several, especially El Hesticulador, were performed across theaters around the world, really. I mean, he had performances with El Ciclador in the U.S., uh, in um, several Latin American countries, including Argentina, uh, in Poland. Um, Today, I think it is, uh, to me at least, it seems like a bit less, you know, a bit less Mm -hmm. well-known. I don't know if it is still being performed internationally, but I know up until about the late 90s, uh, Mexico's Center for Theater, the uh, Instituto Nacional de Bellas Artes at the uh, Palacio de Bellas Artes um, was putting on performances that gained a lot of press attention, especially due to the uh, political and uh, democratic changes Mexico was uh, going through during the 90s. Rick? Craig, um, well, as you researched this, uh, this individual, uh, what came as a total surprise, uh, un- unexpected uh, aha moment as you were researching Rodolfo? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, we ask tough questions here on <laughs> ROI. <laughs> I, I'm, you know, I'm trying to think because uh, there were definitely several. Um, I would say, like, uh, one of the, the big aha moments for me was when I first got started researching him, uh, figuring out 
I was interested in less so uh, on the art side and more so on the kind of uh, the political implications and the way Sigli acts as an example of the way artists could be co-opted uh, by the single-party state in Mexico during the uh, the mid-20th century, during the post-revolutionary period. Um, this uh, kind of single-party system that was both authoritarian and conciliatory at the same time uh, to people, uh, to groups and people, individuals who attempted to uh, critique or contest it, um, how he acted as an example of that. And... Uh, the play is first performed in 1947, has, uh, you know, a tremendous explosive moment in Mexican theater history. Uh, sells out uh, many shows, um, but is also uh, lambasted by uh, many uh, critics in the press as being, you know, like an attack on the revolution, uh, something that was denigrating the revolutionary history that Mexico uh, had just gone through. Um and I think one of the uh, um, aha moments was uh, I had found a, a recent publication by a, a, um, a Mexicanist historian, uh, um, Benjamin Smith, uh, that that I was able, he, he had a chapter in that about the year following how there were these uh, uh, big uh, public protests in Mexico City um, over the devaluation of the peso that year uh, that were uh, directly kind of, you know, there were reproduced in, in the press something that hadn't really been seen before, jokes and gossip and uh, songs that were parodying uh, the president at the time, Miguel Aleman, which was something that just, you know, didn't typically happen. Even in in the press, if, if you critique the political system, there was this tenet of maybe you could do so and get away with it, but you cannot attack the president. The president is kind of sacrosanct. That was kind of an aha moment where I could connect the uh, responses that Hesiklia Dora kind of uh, drew about from the press at the time, where there were open recognitions of the corruption and considerations about freedoms of expression or freedom of expression under under the uh, single party state and under Aleman, um, how that kind of directly connected with what would happen a year later with the uh, protests. It is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. So, Craig. Why do you think knowing about Rodolfo Usigli is relevant in today's world? I think uh, the case of Usigli is uh, uh, especially relevant for understanding, kind of like how I mentioned earlier, but the ways in which um, government systems that are have elements have democratic and authoritarian elements. Uh, how power functions uh, within that between like individuals and then the broader institutions and structures of rule and power. I think Usigli is a great example for that. And then I also think um, there are elements, especially towards the uh, the latter end of his life, um, moments that that pop up. Uh, he was a a representative at the time of the. Uh, the Tlatelolco massacre um, that directly mm-hmm. uh, or kind of indirectly tie in with um, where Mexico is at uh, in the modern day. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 534th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, and it was written and performed by Mark Zapp Sapital. My name is Terry Toppler. We would like to thank our guest, Craig Verniest, former graduate student at Miami University of Ohio, who talked with us about Mexican playwright Rodolfo Usigli. The history buff for today's show was Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. So we'd like to wish all listeners to experience the great Basuda proverb, Kahutsa Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Mm-hmm.